Section 17, comprising chapters 46 and 47 of Life and Adventures of Frank and Jesse James by J. A. Dacus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by P. J. Landau. Chapter 46 Epistles of Jesse James. How Jesse Takes His Own Part with a Pen. Some Terse Specimens of Jesse's Style. Jesse James is not an educated man in the scholastic sense of that term. In this respect, he differs widely from his brother Frank, who has a fair knowledge of the Latin and Greek languages, and is said to be able to converse fluently in the Spanish and German tongues. Frank was a college student when the war was commenced, and Jesse a schoolboy in a country place. He had made some progress, had learned to, quote, read, write, and cipher, unquote, and was wrestling with, quote, the knotty intricacies, unquote, of English grammar and geography when his career in school was stopped short by the political events occurring around him. It cannot be expected that Jesse's literary performances should exhibit the classic finish of an Addison or an Irving, and yet, barring his faulty orthography, his style is direct and pointed, and under other circumstances, he might have become a very good newspaper reporter. Although Jesse is deficient in the command of language to express his views in accordance with the canons of literary criticism, yet his letters, if not elegant specimens of composition, are at least vigorous and clear. It is a matter of regret that so few specimens of his epistolary ability are available. We have succeeded in obtaining copies of a few of his letters, but unfortunately none which reveal the domestic relations and characteristics of the man. Such of Jesse's letters as we have been able to secure, which have any interest for the public, we present in this chapter. The following note was addressed from Jesse to a friend in Missouri, and came into the hands of a gentleman who, for reasons which the author is bound to respect, desires his name to be withheld. The orthography alone is revised. The year, it will be observed, is not given. Comanche, Texas, June 10th. Dear Jim, I hear they are making a great fuss about old Dan Askew, and say the James boys done the killing. It's one of old Pink's lies circulated by his sneaks. I can prove that I was in Texas, at Dallas, on the 12th of May, when the killing was done. Several persons of the highest respectability know that I could not have been in Clay County, Missouri at that time. I might name a number who could swear to this, whose words would be taken anywhere. It's my opinion Askew was killed by Jack Ladd and some of Pinkerton's men, but no meanness is ever done now, but the James boys must bear the blame for it. This is like the balance of the lies they tell about me and my brother. I wish you would correct the lies the Kansas City papers have printed, about the shooting of old Askew, and oblige. Yours faithfully, Jesse. The date of the murder of Askew, given in the above letter, is wrong. That event occurred on the night of April 12th, and not May, as the writer of the above note assumes. The following is a characteristic note. It contains several allusions unintelligible to the uninitiated. It was written to an old comrade who long ago abandoned a wild life and is living as a respectable citizen. Fort Worth, March 10, 1877. Dear Blank, The beeves will soon be ready. 
As soon as the roads dry up and the streams run down, we will drive. We expect to take a good bunch of cattle in. You may look out. There will be plenty of bellowing after the drive. Remember, it is business. The range is good, I learn, between Sydney and Deadwood. We may go to pasture somewhere in that region. You will hear of it. Tell Sam to come to Honeygrove, Texas, before the drive season comes. There's money in the stock. As ever, Jesse J. The following letter was obtained in Colorado by a gentleman who claims to be well acquainted with the handwriting of Jesse James, and claims that it was dropped by Jack Bishop. As to its authenticity, we leave the reader to judge. It is in style much such a letter as Jesse James might have written. Rest Ranch, Texas, January 23rd. Dear Jack, We had a little fun on the other side of the line lately. A lot of greasers came over and broke up several ranches. Some of us were down that way, and the cowboys wanted us to help them, and we done it. Some of our cattle had been taken, and I don't owe the yellow legs anything good anyhow. Well, we left some half a dozen or more for carrion bird meat. We brought the cattle back. I was confounded glad we met some cavalry out after raiders. There was a big lot of them motley scamps, and we would have had a pretty rough time, I expect. But the sneaks got back as fast as they could. You would have enjoyed the racket. As ever yours, J.W.J. The last letter to an individual which we here present is vouched for as being in the handwriting of Jesse James by Marshal James Liggett. It was written to George W. Shepard about two weeks after the Glendale train robbery. In this, as in the other notes given above, we have revised the orthography without correcting the grammatical errors. The letter is without date and runs as follows. Friend George, I can't wait for you here. I want you to meet me on Rogue's Island, and we will talk about that business we spoke of. I would wait for you, but the boys wants to leave here. Don't fail to come, and if we don't buy them cattle, I will come back with you. Come to the place where we met going south that time, and stay in that neighborhood until I find you. Your friend, Jay. On many occasions, Jesse has written, or caused to be written, exculpatory letters for publication in the public journals. We present a few of these as specimens of Jesse's epistolary style, and because of the interesting character of their allusions to his own conduct. It will be observed that the dates of outrages on banks and railways are wrong in several instances as given in these letters. For instance, the following communication appeared in the Nashville, Tennessee Banner of July 10, 1875. Raytown, Missouri, July 5th, 1875. Gentlemen, as my attention has been called recently to the notice of several sensational pieces copied from the Nashville Union and American, stating that the Jameses and Youngers are in Kentucky, I ask space in your valuable paper to say a few words in my defense. I would treat these reports with silent contempt, but I have many friends in Kentucky and Nashville that I wish to know that these reports are false and without foundation. I have never been out of Missouri since the amnesty bill was introduced into the Missouri legislature last March, asking for pardon for the James and Younger boys. I am in constant communication with Governor Hardin, Sheriff Groom of Clay County, Missouri, and several other honorable county and state officials, 
and there are hundreds of persons in Missouri who will swear that I have not been in Kentucky. There are desperados roving round in Kentucky, and it is probably very important for the officials of Kentucky to be vigilant. If a robbery is committed in Kentucky today, Detective Bly of Louisville would telegraph all over the United States that the James and Younger boys did it, just as he did when the Columbia, Kentucky bank was robbed April 29, 1872. Old Bly, the Sherman bummer who is keeping up all the sensational reports in Kentucky, and if the truth were known, I am satisfied some of the informers are concerned in many robberies charged to the James and Younger boys for ten years. The radical papers in Missouri and other states have charged nearly every daring robbery in America to the James and Younger boys. It is enough for the northern newspapers to persecute us without the papers of the South, the land we fought for for four years, to save from northern tyranny, to be persecuted by papers claiming to be democratic is against reason. The people of the South have only heard one side of the report. I will give a true history of the lives of the James and Younger boys to the banner in the future, or rather a sketch of our lives. We have not only been persecuted, but on the night of the 25th of January, 1875, at the midnight hour, nine Chicago assassins and Sherman bummers, led by Billy Pinkerton, Jr., crept up to my mother's house and hurled a missile of war a 32-pound shell in a room among innocent women and children, murdering my eight-year-old brother and tearing my mother's right arm off and wounding several others of the family, and then firing the house in seven places. The radical papers here in Missouri have repeatedly charged the Russellville, Kentucky bank robbery to the James and Younger boys, while it is well known that on the day of the robbery, March 20, 1869, I was at the Chaplin Hotel in Chaplin, Nelson County, Kentucky, which I can prove by Mr. Tom Marshall, the proprietor, and 50 others. And on that day, my brother Frank was at work on the La Ponsu Ranch in San Luis Obispo County, California, for J.D.P. Thompson, which can be proven by the sheriff of San Luis Obispo County and many others. Frank was in Kentucky the winter previous to the robbery, but he left Alexander Sayers in Nelson County January 25, 1868, and sailed from New York City January the 16th, which the books of the United States mail line steamers will show. Probably I have written too much, and probably not enough, but I hope to write much more to the banner in the future. I will close by sending my kindest regards to old Dr. Eve, and many thanks to him for kindness to me when I was wounded under his care. Yours respectfully, Jesse James. The following communications appeared in the Kansas City Times during the excitement succeeding the great train robbery at Rocky Cut near Otterville, Missouri. The first one appeared in the Times in its edition of August 14, 1876, and the second one came out on the morning of the 23rd of the same month. Jesse James's First Letter Oak Grove, Kansas, August 14, 1876 You have published Hobbs Carey's Confession, which makes it appear that the Jameses and the Youngers were the rocky-cut robbers. If there was only one side to be told, it would probably be believed by a good many people that Carey has told the truth. But his so-called confession is a well-built pack of lies from beginning to end. 
I never heard of Hobbs Carey, Charles Pitts, and William Chadwell until Carey's arrest. I can prove my innocence by eight good, well-known men of Jackson County, and show conclusively that I was not at the train robbery. But at present I will only give the names of two of those gentlemen to whom I will refer for proof. Early on the morning after the train robbery east of Sedalia, I saw the Honorable D. Gregg of Jackson County and talked with him for thirty or forty minutes. I also saw and talked to Thomas Pitcher of Jackson County the morning after the robbery. Those two men's oaths cannot be impeached, so I refer the grand jury of Cooper County, Missouri, and Governor Hardin to those men before they act so rashly on the oath of a liar, thief, and robber. Carey knows that the Jameses and Youngers can't be taken alive, and that is why he has put it on us. I have referred to Messrs. Pitcher and Gregg because they are prominent men, and they know I am innocent, and their words can't be disputed. I will write a long article to you for the Times and send it to you in a few days, showing fully how Hobbs Carey has lied, hoping the Times will give me a chance for a fair hearing and to vindicate myself through its columns. I will close, respectfully, J. James. Second letter. Safe retreat, August 18, 1876. I have written a great many articles vindicating myself of the false charges that have been brought against me. Detectives have been trying for years to get positive proof against me for some criminal offense so that they could get a large reward offered for me, dead or alive, and the same by Frank James and the younger boys. But they have been foiled on every turn, and they are fully convinced that we will never be taken alive and now they have fell on the deep-laid scheme to get Hobbs Carey to tell a pack of base lies. But, thank God, I am yet a free man, and have got the power to defend myself against the charge brought against me by Carey, a notorious liar and poltroon. I will give a full statement and prove his confession false. Lie number one. He said a plot was laid by the Jameses and Youngers to rob the Granby Bank. I am reliably informed that there never was a bank in Granby. Lie number two. He said he met with Cole Younger and me at Mr. Tyler's. If there is a man in Jackson County by that name, I am sure that I am not acquainted with him. Lie number three. He said Frank James was at Mr. Butler's in Cass County. I and Frank don't know any man in Cass County by that name. I can prove my innocence by eight good citizens of Jackson County, Missouri, but I do not propose to give all their names at present. If I did, those cutthroat detectives would find out where I am. My opinion is that Bacon Montgomery, the scoundrel who murdered Captain A.J. Clements, December 13, 1866, is the instigator of all this Missouri Pacific affair. I believe he planned the robbery and got his share of the money, and when he went out to look for the robbers, he led the pursuers off the robbers' trail. If the truth was half told about Montgomery, it would make the world believe that Montgomery has no equal. Only the Bender family and the midnight assassins who murdered my poor, helpless, and innocent eight-year-old brother and shot my mother's arm off, and I am of opinion that he had a hand in that dirty, cowardly work. The detectives are a brave lot of boys. 
charge houses, break down doors, and make the gray hairs stand up on the heads of unarmed victims. Why don't President Grant have the soldiers called in and send the detectives out on special trains after the hostile Indians? A.M. Pinkerton's force with hand grenades, and they will kill all the women and children. And as soon as the women and children are killed, it will stop the breed, and the warriors will die out in a few years. I believe the railroad robbers will yet be sifted down on someone at St. Louis or Sedalia, putting up the job and then trying to have it put on innocent men, as Carey has done. Hoping the Times will publish, just as I have written, I will close, Jesse James. Chapter 47. Glendale. The Last Great Train Robbery. A Night Ride to a Lonely Wayside Station. How the Robbery Was Affected. The eastern part of Jackson County, the western part of Lafayette, and down southward through Cass County, constitute the very center of the field of operations chosen by the old guerrilla leaders Quantrell, Todd, Anderson, Younger, Poole, Clements, and the Jameses during the war. The Snee Hills and the timber-crowned undulations bordering the Big Blue afforded them excellent hiding places when sorely pressed, and from their fastnesses in the hills they could easily make forays into the very suburbs of the garrison towns of Kansas City, Independence, Lexington, Pleasant Hill, and Harrisonville. They knew every pathway over the hills and every crossing place along the streams. Around and among these forests were the farms and dwellings of their friends and warm sympathizers in their cause. Time has wrought some changes in the country since those days, but the forest-crowned hills and the deep-tangled thickets and the sparkling streams still are there. The face of nature has changed but little among the hills of the Snee or along the banks of the Blue. It was meet that the bandits, who were believed to be the same men who once were guerrillas, should come back to the scenes of their earlier adventures to consummate their latest and most daring robbery. October 7, 1879, was a beautiful, sunny, warm day. The woods had not yet assumed the sober brown hues of autumn, but nature was lovely in the rich ripeness of the summer's close. The great tide of human life flowed on in its accustomed channels. Some were engaged in the pursuit of pleasure. Some were in search of gain. Others were toiling for bread. Some were happy in having accomplished their designs. Others were wretched in realizing the bitterness of disappointment. Some were glad in the knowledge that they had contributed to the happiness of their fellow mortals. Others were miserable because they beheld the gladness of their neighbors and knew of the triumphs of their rivals. Some planned good deeds. Others plotted dark crimes. These all go to constitute the atoms of the mighty tide of human life, and their plans, purposes, and deeds all contribute to the production of the surges and swirls of the stream as it flows through time to the gulf of eternity. There were always plotters. Since the world began, men have schemed, and until the end of time, there will be the good and the bad in humanity, sometimes one and sometimes the other quality predominating. And so, while the autumn sunshine was golden and the wood cricket's chirp was mournful, the schemers were prodding their brain in the devising of a scheme to commit a grievous crime. 
Glendale is a lonely wayside station in the western part of Lafayette County, Missouri, on the line of the Chicago and Alton Railway, Kansas City branch. There is a water tank, a little station house, and a few houses in a narrow vale, wedged in between rugged hills, which are covered with lofty trees and tangled thickets, a fit place for the rendezvous of a banditti. Glendale is about 20 miles from Kansas City, and on the line of the road between Independence and Blue Springs, in the very midst of a region where many of the darkest crimes and deeds of blood which mark the guerrilla warfare of the border were committed both by the Federal militia and the Confederate guerrillas. The country about Glendale is one of the wildest regions in western Missouri, and the hills and dark ravines afford excellent opportunities for the concealment of both men and horses. A better situation for a successful foray by brigands does not exist on the line of the road between Chicago and Kansas City. The night express train, bound from Kansas City to Chicago and St. Louis, left the Union Depot in the first-named city on the evening of the 7th at 6 o'clock, and consequently was due at Glendale at about 7 o'clock, a short time after daylight had faded from the west. Now, as we have before intimated, Glendale is a place with a nice name, but few inhabitants though perhaps it is not destined to go down to history with the historic interest attached to Arabella, Malplaquet, Shiloh, Kennesaw, or Waterloo, yet so early in its history Glendale has become famous. The incident which contributed so much to this result occurred on the evening of the 7th of October, 1879. In addition to the station house, the business of Glendale is represented by a post office and a general store kept by the postmaster. The evening in question was very pleasant outside of houses, and when the curtains of night were drawn and the store was lighted, the postmaster and four others who constituted the male population of the place, except the station agent, Mr. McIntyre, had gathered in front of the little store to discuss the neighborhood's affairs. They were quietly interchanging views. Suddenly a stranger joined the circle, and walking quickly to where the proprietor was sitting, he tapped him on the shoulder and said, I want you. What do you want? asked the other. The new arrival did not deign to answer the question, but quietly stepped away and said, Here, boys. In a minute, nay, a moment, half a dozen rough-looking men, muffled and masked, stood by his side armed with huge pistols and wicked-looking knives. Their pistols they held cocked in their hands. Then the leader, in a harsh, grating voice, said, now take care make tracks out of this the terrified citizens started to obey as they were going the leader said to the depot do you hear in great consternation the little company of citizens filed away to the depot in the depot was the operator and agent mr mcintyre and mr w e bridges assistant auditor of the chicago and alton railway company already under duress when the citizens were all assembled in the room the leader said now sit down, act clever, and keep still, or you will not have heads left on you. Of course, obedience to such an order was just then regarded by all the parties as a great virtue, and they therefore obeyed. The masked men, who had now assembled to the number of twelve, according to one account, fourteen by another witness, tore away the telegraphic instrument and went out and cut the wires. The instrument was smashed. 
Now, said the leader, whose only mask was a long, dark beard, I want you to lower that green light. But, said the agent, the train will stop if I do. That's the alum, precisely what we want it to do, my buck, and the sooner you obey orders, the better. I will give you a minute to lower the light, said the bearded leader, at the same time thrusting a cocked pistol to the face of the agent. The operator could see the long, bright barrel of the pistol, and the dark, cavernous interior of the tube had a forbidding appearance. He looked up into the face of the long-bearded man. He saw a cold, fixed look, and every indication, so far as features could reveal intentions, that the robber chieftain meant just what he said, and he lowered the light. Of course, the position of the light was an order to the conductor to stop at Glendale and receive fresh instructions, according to the code of signals in use among railway men. But to be perfectly sure of the expected plunder, and in order to destroy even the possibility of the train passing without making a stop, the robbers heaped a pile of cross ties, fence rails, and other lumber across the track. Having completed their preparations, the robbers quietly awaited the coming of the train. It was a little after seven o'clock. The prisoners in the station house were wondering about what would happen next, and especially were they concerned and anxious respecting what should happen to them. Then the distant rumbling of the train was heard. Louder and louder it fell upon the ears of the listeners. The engineer saw the signal displayed, which commanded him to stop. He sounded the whistle and ordered the brakes on. The train stood still on the track with the engine at the tank. The conductor, with lantern in hand, sprang upon the platform ere the wheels had ceased to revolve and was about to proceed to the little station house to receive his orders. But he had made little progress in that direction when a man rushed up to him with a cocked revolver, which he held out as if to fire. This man was speedily joined by another, who was also armed in like manner. Both the men wore masks. Mr. Greeman, the conductor, was of course powerless to resist such odds, and with mingled feelings of alarm and disgust, was compelled to await the pleasure of the strange men whom he now knew to be robbers. Two men rushed up to the cab of the locomotive and made prisoners of the engineer and fireman by the presentation of pistols and the stern declaration that instant death would certainly follow a failure to obey or an attempt at resistance. One of the robbers addressing the engineer called out, Hand me that coal hammer of yours. What do you want of it? asked the other. Hand it here very quick, or you'll never have use for another, was the emphatic command of the robber, accompanied by a very significant movement of the pistol arm. Thus appealed to, the engineer obeyed. The large hammer used by stokers to break coal was handed to the masked desperado. Then a group of the masked men, with the long-bearded man at their head, gathered at the door of the express car. One of the men with the coal hammer then commenced beating on the door of the car. The messenger, who was in charge of a large sum of money, more than $35,000 in currency and much other valuable property, was inside, but had refused to open the door. The messenger, Mr. William Grimes, could hear the blows of the ponderous hammer and knew that its place would soon be open to the marauders. The door was already yielding. It was falling to splinters, and a minute later the car was broken into by the masked and armed robbers. Grimes, in the meanwhile, had formed a hasty plan to escape with the money. While the robbers were beating on the door, he opened the safe, took therefrom a large amount of money, 
hastily deposited in a satchel and relocked the door of the safe, and was attempting to escape by the other door. He was too late. The robbers sprang into the car before he was ready to leave it. In any event, escape was rendered impossible by the fact that the other door of the car was guarded. He could only have escaped a part of the band to fall into the hands of their comrades. When the robbers rushed into the car, after having broken the door open, one of them cried out to the messenger, Here, you, give me that key. I will not. You may take it, answered the messenger. The words had no more than escaped his lips, when one of the gang in the car dealt him a terrible blow with the butt of a heavy revolver which felled him to the floor. They took the key, opened the safe, and rifled it of all its contents which were of value to them. They then took the packages from the messenger's satchel, and the great railway and express robbery at Glendale was an accomplished fact. During the time occupied by a part of the robber band about the express car, a patrol was distributed along the sides of the train, and these were discharging firearms at intervals for the purpose, as is supposed, of intimidating the passengers. The whole time occupied in completing this great robbery probably did not exceed ten minutes. The whole amount of booty secured was probably fully $40,000. The passengers were greatly alarmed during these proceedings. Valuables were hastily concealed under seats, about the persons of the owners, and wherever else a place not likely to be examined by the robbers could be found. After concluding the work which brought them to Glendale, the brigands, amid the reports of pistol shots, set up a shout which echoed among the hills for a long distance around, sought their horses, mounted, and rode away through the gloom. They had locked the citizens in the little station house. These waited until everything seemed still about the place, for the train had moved on, and then they broke down the door and walked out of their temporary prison house. End of section 17